can turn to 1 Timothy 3. Every October, our congregation nominates men for the office of elder. Uh, You'll be seeing these cards, or if you don't see them, you need to look for them, because these are the cards that you fill out uh, in order to nominate men for the office of elder. You have until Friday, October 31st, to nominate them, so um, gives you a couple few weeks. And then we'll have a congregational meeting on December 3rd to elect five men from among the nominees. So those elected men will serve their three-year term starting in January. Uh, Just a brief explanation of how things work here. We've always had it to where um, every elder serves a three-year term and then has to roll off for at least one year. And so usually the way it has worked is four men will roll off each year and four men roll back on. Well, for the next few years... There will be four men roll off and five men come back on in, uh, ultimately until there are, there's one more elder per the session. That's just, uh, and then there will be five and five, and I don't really understand the math. Some of you could help me, but uh, that's what's going on. Going from 12 to 15, I think. Gotcha. So that's why you're taking three years to not, okay, to only roll off four and add five. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, it is the members of Grace of Anne who nominate men for elder. That happens the month of October. And not only do we nominate them, we also actually elect them into office. That happens at the congregational meeting on Wednesday night, December 3rd. So, you have from now until October 31st to think and pray about men that you would nominate. And then you have the whole month of November to get to know the nominees in order to know who to elect. Any questions so far? That's just kind of the way it rolls around here. So the question comes up, who should we nominate? Do we nominate men that are really involved in church, uh, more so than, than normal? Do we nominate men that are successful? Do we nominate men that are leaders in the business world? So we figure because they're good leaders there, those principles surely would transfer, and we know that they would be good leaders here. Um, do we nominate men that we think would be good for the job because we know them well and we love them and, and uh, we just know they would do a good job? No, not necessarily to any of those. Um, not that those things are bad things, but the Bible gives us a much more specific list of characteristics that will guide us to the right men. So God has really taken the guesswork out of it. Nominating and electing elders is not a subjective matter. He has described an elder in objective detail in his word. And our job is simply to study the principles laid out in his word and locate the men in our congregation that are described in his word. So there are two places that we find uh, God's description of an elder. The first one is in 1 Timothy 3. The next one is a few pages later in Titus chapter 1. Um, I'm going to read both Passages. We'll start in the First Timothy passage, First Timothy three one through seven. Follow as I read. This is the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle, 
not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Next passage, Titus 1, 5 through 9. Paul writes, Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul writes to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus, so that you may put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Amen. Uh, The first thing you may have noticed is that in... 1 Timothy, the word overseer is used, and in Titus, uh, Paul uses the term elder. He actually uses both uh, overseer and elder in Titus. Paul wrote both these letters, one to his understudy Timothy, one to his understudy Titus. These are the two two of the men, um, if not the two chief men, that Paul is entrusting his ministry to as he uh, fades into glory. And he simply uses these two words, overseer and elder, interchangeably to, to refer to the same thing. So I'll continue to use elder, overseer is fine if you must, but uh, I'll show you, if you saw in Titus, he says, I left you there, Titus, to appoint elders in every town, and then in verse 7 he says, an overseer as God's steward, he, he refers to them the same thing, but I'll show you another place in Acts 20, if you want to turn backward to Acts. Um, where, where both of these words are used together. Of course, the relevance is there, there are uh, whole big, large pieces of the church at large, the Catholic Church, the Episcopal Church, that would say these are two different things. And, you know, you have your bishops or overseers, and then you have elders kind of underneath them. Um, just so you know kind of why we stand, where we stand. And so that you can, if you ever get in a conversation, they say, well, we should have the Pope and all these other dudes and then all these other down below. You can point to these things and say, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, Acts twenty seventeen. This is Paul, speaking of Paul. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul calls the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to him Uh, And when they came to him, he said to them. So really in the second half of verse 18 all the way through verse 35, you have what Paul is saying to the elders at Ephesus. If you look at verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there again, you saw it in Titus, you see it again in Acts. Elders, overseers, used interchangeably in case that gives anyone any trouble. Back to 1 Timothy and Titus. 
Again, uh, these descriptions were given by God in order to identify the men in our church, in any church, that He has called to serve as elders. Our job is simply to study the qualifications and to locate the men in our midst. So, let's uh, break down the qualifications. Number one, elders are to be men. Um, We could look at both, but just look at the 1 Timothy passage and notice how many times there are uh, he or him references. The saying is trustworthy, 1 Timothy 3, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Uh, Verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. You see it, so on and so forth. There's like 11 references in this little section to he or him or husband or something like that. You'd find the same thing in Titus. Um, I don't think that troubles anyone in here, but if it does, there it is. And uh, So number one, elders are men. Number two, there is an overarching quality um, of these men. They are above reproach. It's the first thing mentioned in both passage, and I, like, I think we should think about it as sort of an umbrella term. Um, an elder is to be above reproach in everything that is mentioned in the passage. So um, some translations say blameless instead of above reproach. There are two words used for blameless in the New Testament. One of them means like perfect, spotless, without blemish. Um, The other one is like without blame or, you know, um, you can't accuse him. He, He can't be rightfully accused because he doesn't have blame. And that's the one that's used in Timothy and Titus. So the first one is really talking about like our perfected state when we get to glory that one day, someday when we're with Jesus and we have no more sin and we're perfect, spotless, blameless, perfect. Um, that's not the one used here. The one used here means someone who is unreprovable or unaccusable. You can't get him on anything um, really having to do with the, the requirements. So of course there's no one right now anywhere um, that is perfect, spotless, without blemish. No one on earth. We all have sin. But all elders are to be above reproach, unaccusable. You can't get him on anything. In other words, he fits all of the qualifications um, that are listed. And, you know, sometimes I think we might dumb down what above reproach means just by making it mean maybe a little bit better than normal or a little bit better than the rest. But it's really more than that. Um, to, to be above reproach is to live in such a way that no one can get you on anything regarding the, the qualities, uh, the qualifications of an elder that are laid out in the text. So God did not give these qualifications so that we would find men that meet more of them than others, like 75% is better than 50%. He gave these qualifications in order that we could identify the men he has put in our midst to lead our church, and those men are to be 100% the men described here. So, elders are to be men who are above reproach. Um, And we can gather all of the following characteristics. There's lots of them. Um, We can gather all of them into three general groups. Number one, an elder must be above reproach in his, uh, a man who is above reproach in his marriage and family life. Uh, Number two, an elder must be above reproach in his character and conduct. 
And number three, an elder must be above reproach in his understanding and handling of the scriptures. So we'll look at those three sections, and I'm just going to list everything that's listed there and where I can gather them into one. Um, I'm going to do that. First section, above reproach in marriage and family life. Uh, one of the first things, or one of the things we see in both First Timothy and Titus is that an elder is the husband of one wife. Now, um, our church has taken that to mean that a man cannot be divorced and be an elder. Um, there are other interpretations out there, but at this point it's really not important to know what they are because uh, you should just know that as you look to nominate a man for elder in our church, um, he cannot be a man that has been divorced. Number two, an elder, uh, cannot, an elder must manage his own household well. It says in 1 Timothy 3.4, and it gives two qualifiers with that. He must manage his own household well with dignity, and uh, keeping his children submissive. So, with dignity, in other words, uh, he is worthy of honor and respect in his home. And uh, keeping his children submissive, or some say under control, the text goes on to say, if he can't manage his household, how's he going to manage God's church? And uh, that's the logic. He's the clear leader in his home, and he's a good one at that. Um, He's looked to for his leadership. He's loved and respected. In his leadership, he's doing well with his responsibilities at home. And it shows in that his children follow his lead. Not only that, um, but the Titus passage says that his children are believers. Uh, and, And then it even adds to that. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Some translations say, you know, not open to rebellion. His children are not rebellious. Um, now, this doesn't mean that we are able to see in their hearts, but, uh, I mean, we can view this objectively. Do his children claim to be believers? Does their life match their confession? Um, it may be that a man has children who are believers, but they're in a current period of rebellion. And if we're going to take, take this text seriously, that man should not be nominated at the present time. Now, if only it were that easy, and it's always so black and white, but it's not. These principles are not always easy to apply. What do you do if you have a man who has a child or some children that are uh, you think would be a good elder because he meets qualifications, but his children are, you know, one of them's barely talking because they're so young, and uh, they're not able to articulate a profession of faith. What do you do then? Does that mean he doesn't meet this? Um, Certainly you can still tell if such a man is managing his household well and if he's, you know, uh, worthy of honor and respect in his home, but what about his requirement, this requirement for his children to be believers? I think there's some out there that would say that he shouldn't be nominated. And I wouldn't apply it that way, but... um, I don't think that necessarily means that they're wrong. I think that uh, whatever your conscience permits in regard to the principle. So you take the biblical requirement, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Pray to God to lead you in your decision-making and make a decision. And if you can't in good conscience nominate someone who has young children simply because they're not old enough for us to know whether or not they truly are believers, I wouldn't fight you on that. Um, this is the way I think about it. 
A man has younger kids. Is he managing his household well? Do his children respect him? Do they submit to him? Do they follow his lead? Look, all kids are sinners, so um, that doesn't mean there's no trace of sin and disobedience. If that's the case, every man is disqualified. But um, is he the established authority in his home? And, you know, is he discipling his children to lead them to know the Lord and love the Lord and follow the Lord? If some of them are too young to tell, that wouldn't necessarily stop me. That said, I would say this. If after he becomes an elder, um, it becomes clear that things are not in order in his home, and little Johnny has turned into terrible Johnny that hates the Lord, hates his parents, and has been kicked out of three schools in the last six months. If it becomes clear that his child or children are not believers, I think it's on this man to remove himself from the office. Um, Not that he isn't a Christian, not that he's a bad man, simply that his children are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, and Titus 1 says... Elders have children who are believers and not open to such charges. Well, here's another scenario. What do you do if a man adopted an orphan when the child was about 10 and the child has grown up now, is not following the Lord, and is open to the charge of debauchery? Again, if someone in good conscience could not nominate such a man, it's their application of the principle to the best that they know how in good conscience, I wouldn't fight him on that. As for me, I try to look at the bigger picture. Does this man have other children? Are they believers? Not to mention, the fact that this man is the kind of man that adopts an orphan, you know, speaks a lot, I think. So, um, it's not always black and white. There's a lot of gray area in life. That said, we can't make these things say nothing. And um, when it's not so cut and dry, you have to take the biblical principle and you have to prayerfully apply it in good conscience. Next section, he is above reproach in character and conduct. Uh, Titus says, not arrogant. So here again, does this mean that he doesn't sin? No. Everyone struggles with pride to varying degrees, all of us. Um, But there is a difference between a man who is humble because of his struggle with pride and a prideful, arrogant man, right? I mean, there's there's someone who recognizes traces of pride. It it grieves him. He's constantly confessing sin and repenting of sin. That's humility. And then there's prideful, arrogant men that aren't that. Also in Titus, it says this man is not quick-tempered. There's no room for hotheads uh, in the session. It also says in both passages that he's not violent. Of course, this excludes like men who beat their wives and children, but some translations say he's not pugnacious here. So it also means that he's not combative, aggressive, contentious. He's not trying to argue every point, which would make for a nightmare in a session meeting. There's no room for people in the session that just like to pick fights and uh, just like to be heard. And everything that's put on the table, they're going to they're gonna push back on. There's some healthy pushback, and then there's that, you know, pugnacious pushback, and we have to be able to discern the difference. Um, related to this, in Timothy, it says that an elder is not quarrelsome. Next, an elder is not greedy for gain, it says in Titus. Uh, in Timothy, a little bit different wording. It says he's not a lover of money. Um, this really doesn't... It doesn't matter how much a man has, 
The question is really, is he a good steward of his resources? Does he have hold of his resources or do his resources have hold of him? So a good question um, that, I I mean, we should go there with people, particularly when there's a shorter list of nominees um, after we've nominated men and we have a month to get to know them. It, you know, call, text, ask to coffee. I mean, that's, we should, that's a reasonable thing to do. But a good question to ask is, do you give? You know, they ask staff members that, so why shouldn't we ask elders that who are over our staff members? Are you sacrificial with your resources? Um, these are good questions to, to ask a man that you're thinking about nominating. Is the man content in what he has, or is he caught up in the love of riches? Later in 1 Timothy 6, in verses 8 through 10, Paul says this, listen to this. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. An elder must not be greedy for gain. He must not be a lover of money. Next, um, an elder is sober-minded. Some translations say temperate or prudent. Uh, That's in Timothy. So is he wise and measured? Or is he foolish and reckless? Um, You know, has he been bankrupt four times? Or is he plotting a slower course in a better trajectory? An elder is wise and measured. About this, um, men are not qualified to be an elder because they are good in business, but it should not surprise us when we find that our elders have been good in business. So, um, these are men who know how to chart a good course over the long haul. Next, an elder, it says in both passages, uh, an elder is self-controlled and disciplined. So, um, elders are hard workers, and not only at work. Does this man have a disciplined spiritual life? A good question to ask a man that you're thinking about nominating for elder. Uh, Tell me about your your devotional life. Is he a man of the Word and prayer? Is he um, committed to fighting sin in his life and growing in godliness? Again, it's like the whole... Uh, of course, we all have pride, but is he prideful? You know, there's a difference, major difference. Um, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And the humble still have pride issues, but they're not proud. So it's, you know, just doing a little investigative work to find out what's this man's spiritual life like. Um, both pastors say that an elder is not a drunkard. Doesn't mean that he can't drink, does mean that he doesn't get drunk. Uh, Titus says that he's a lover of good. So, you know, just the kind of guy that loves the truth of God's Word. He delights in living according to it. Um, next, an elder, First Timothy says, is gentle. It says not violent, but gentle. You know, uh, elders find themselves in the middle of big messes sometimes. And uh, sometimes that involves people with big sin, um, overwhelming personal sin, deep shame. We'll talk about in a minute how an elder must stand firm in the truth and, and be able to call people from repentance uh, to repentance from sin. But he also must be able to sit with someone who has just ruined his life in sin and be compassionate with that person and gentle with that person and gracious and minister the gospel of that person. Uh, An elder is peaceable. Some translations say right after not quarrelsome in Timothy, say peaceable. 
There are a lot of conflicts in the church. Some of them are small, some of them are big, but there are a lot. And again, there's a certain authority that an elder must have to chart a a firm direction um, out of conflict. He must be able to tell people no, but he, he also must be able to get in the middle of a conflict and establish peace. Is he a peacemaker? And that takes, um, you know, courage. Titus says that an elder is upright and, and or just. Um, he wants to see things carried out justly and fairly, and he sees to it that that is the case. He's willing to put things on hold that might be the easier way in order to do it the right way. There's no room for corner cutters on the session. Titus, uh, an elder is holy or devout. Holy meaning, you know, set apart. Um, growing in godliness. These men are... Um, it's not hard to identify them because they're just they're men of God. Above reproach. Both passages say that an elder is hospitable. Um, these men like other people. They share their lives with other people. They have people in their home. And biblical hospitality isn't limited to, you know, having people over for dinner. I mean, it wouldn't be a surprise to find out that an elder has had someone in his home for a long period of time, whether a family member who was sick or um, someone, a missionary or something like that. Um, Timothy, it says that an elder should not be a recent convert. Uh, Pretty self-explanatory, easier for a recent convert to be prideful. Uh, He can become puffed up with conceit. Look at all this change in my life that I've made. You know, I remember as a new believer, not that I'm an elder, um, but I remember as a new believer... For the first couple of years, there's such a drastic change in my life looking at other people who didn't have such change and like, they need to get with the program, you know? But the reality is, why did I change? Because of God's grace, you know? And so sometimes it takes time to kind of get grounded in that reality. An elder should not be a recent convert. Uh, it also says in Timothy that a, an elder should be respectable and well thought of by outsiders. Uh, again, pretty self-explanatory. You can go to this man's work and hear good reports. Um, next section. An elder is to be above reproach in understanding and handling the Scriptures. In Timothy, it says an elder is able to teach. So, every man that you would nominate for elder should be able to take a passage of Scripture and teach it in context. Um, and in order to do that, he would have to be a man that knows at least the general lay of the land in Scripture, the kind of overarching story, and how it fits together. Um, So he has to know what the Bible means when it says something, and then he has to be able to teach it. And that doesn't mean you say, all right, quick, give me the history and background of this. I mean, any good teacher uses resources to do that, but he has to be able to do that. Um, He may not be as gifted as Dr. Young to stand in the pulpit. There's not many that are. But he can open his Bible, he can sit across the table from someone, and he can teach them God's Word. He he could lead a small group, you know, things like that. Not every elder is a pulpiteer and is going to be able to preach in front of hundreds of people, but every elder is able to teach the Word of God. Um, Next, in Titus, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So, uh, and it says two qualifiers, so that he is able to give instruction in sound doctrine and so that he is able to refute or rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Um, Here again, 
an elder needs to know what the Bible says and teaches well enough to teach it himself, but he also needs to be able to identify false teaching. That just doesn't smell right. That What you're saying over there doesn't fit with what we know to be true in God's Word about God's grace, that sort of thing. Um, he has to defend the truth of God's Word. So not only must he be a man of the Word, but he also must be a man with a backbone. He must be able to identify wolves amongst the sheep, and he must be able to stare down the wolves and chase them off. No, that's not true. Get away. Holding firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he's able to instruct God's people and so that he's able to refute those who contradict God's Word. Now, that's a lot, right? That's a lot. Of, first of all, that's just a long list. Uh, it takes a while to like read. But then you start to consider, well... Who is sufficient for such things? Few men qualify. Um, But we can't look at that and say no men qualify. There are men that qualify. And it's incredibly important that we seek to be faithful to God in all things, including the election of the men that will lead our church. Um, Not every church uh, has the congregation elect elders. That's just the way we do it. So... Our congregation has an incredible responsibility to elect the right men. Now, graciously, God has laid out who the men are. We just have to find them. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's also up to the men who are nominated to examine themselves, and some of you may be nominated, um, to, to examine yourselves in light of these things and to prayerfully consider, has God called me to this? And I don't mean a subjective feeling that you have about whether or not you should do this. I mean, do I fit the bill? Has God called me to this? Um, That said, we shouldn't be afraid to participate in fear of getting it wrong. We need to examine the Scriptures. We need to um, prayerfully examine the Scriptures. And then we have to actually make a decision with, with a clear conscience. Certainly, I think people in our church have been guilty of taking this lightly. And that's why I have chosen to go into so much detail about it, because it's not something to be taken lightly. Um, There is not place for people who don't get involved in the process because they don't care, nor for people who just vote for who they think would be good because they've been friends for a while. But neither do I want us to overcorrect and uh, just be afraid that we're going to get it wrong, so we don't do it. Examine the passages, pray that God would lead you to the right men, and He will, and cast your ballot. Um, I'll say this, I said this last year, and I plan to probably do this every year during this time of year, as long as 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 I'm um, with you. I believe this is a far more significant election to participate in than the presidential election. Um, I, I once had someone tell me that it is my Christian duty to vote in the presidential election. Now, that is just simply overstated, and it's not true. Um, and I can't tell you that it is your Christian duty to get invested in and vote in this elder election in your church. But, in the scales of heaven, I believe this election ought to outweigh the presidential election in our hearts and our minds every time. The United States is not the bride of Christ, but the church is. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we uh, 
look at these things and think, who is sufficient, Lord? Well, certainly, none of us have perfected um, any of these things. We, we are thankful for your grace and mercy. And Lord, we also recognize that your grace is not only forgiving grace, but it is transforming grace. And anyone in Christ is a new creation. Um, the old has passed away and the new has come. And there are men in our midst that you have uh, given grace to be such men as are described in these passages. Would you lead us to them? We want to nominate and elect your men for the office of elder. What a great privilege it is to participate in this uh, election. Uh, what a great privilege um, and a daunting one for anyone that is elected. And I pray, Lord, that if there be men in this group uh, that would be elected, that you would give them that sense of reverence into what uh, position they may be stepping into. We thank you for your word. It is true. It is right. Every detail is necessary. And uh, we thank you that you speak in such detail to such things. We pray that you be glorified in the nomination process and the election process. And we entrust it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, does anyone have any uh, questions or comments before we jet? How many men can you nominate? Um... I don't know that. I don't think there's a limit. Okay, I was going to say that. I, I didn't think so. You can only vote for five. You can only vote for five, but I don't think there's a limit to nomination. So more than one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, and each, you have to have ten nominations then to end up uh, as a, on the ballot. Thank you. Also, do you, do you believe that these passages are saying that a man has to be married and have children? No, Mm-mm. not not at all. Um, you know that would exclude Jesus and Paul, so we would not be doing good there. <laughs> they would be good elders. <laughs> that I think Josh has asked me that before and uh, stumped me, so I was ready. <laughs> no. Yeah, well, that's a good question, and if you wonder, like, I came from a church with deacons. Um, basically, if you did, well, there are, we're a Presbyterian form of government with multiple elders, and uh, uh, Presbyterian governments do have deacons. We just simply, the, the deacons, uh, the need for deacons arose out of a need for ministry, and our elders have always said, we believe those needs are being met congregationally. So if those needs were not being met, we would install deacons. But if anything, that's just an affirmation of the health of our church community um, because the elders continue to say, we don't have a need for deacons. These needs are being met. Diaconal needs are being met. So, so. we've made a, we've made bright line distinctions on some of these qualifications. There are others we don't have bright line uh, distinctions. For instance, the uh, you know, women. One could argue that the, uh, in the context of Scripture, the cultural context, it just was never even a thought that a woman would possibly be in leadership. Mm-hmm. So, like, is there any, do you have any thoughts about why we choose to make bright line distinctions in some cases and, and others we don't? It's, it's a judgment call. Yeah, uh, I, I think part of, that's a good question. I think part of the reason that things become more firmed up than others is because they become hot button issues that you have to firm up on, like divorce or 
women. You know, those are in the church at large, those are conversations that have been happening over the last many years and that people fall to either side. And because those are controversial issues, I think that causes people to really dig in. And now that said, I think we should do that on every one of them. You know, um, I don't think we should get lax on any of them. I think we should be just as firm on, on all of them. Um, I just think that the reason we are so firm on some is because they've become ones that we've had to discuss. Not we, but the session. I've never been in a session meeting. So. Chris, why is it getting bigger? Bigger isn't always better in a meeting. No. Um, you know, one of just the very practical reasons is because they would like new men to have an opportunity and uh, younger men even to have an opportunity. And so uh, that's just very practical. That's really one of the reasons. So, And there's no... Uh, there's no number to say, you know, he says go appoint elders in every town to Titus. He doesn't say how many, and so there's liberty there. Some churches have like 50 on the session, which would be a nightmare session meeting. But we have 12, always have, uh, going to 13, and in, in hope to get some new folks in there. You to be a member? To vote. To nominate and vote, you do. Yep. Anymore? Practically speaking, what, is, what are the elders responsible for? I mean, I know they're over the staff and supposed to be sort of overseeing the direction of the church, but on a practical, yeah. you know, what kinds of decisions are they? Jeff, you want to answer? Sure. The uh, elders are split up into different zones, as we call them. There's a discipleship zone. Of course, those elders focus on discipleship inside the church. There's the evangelism zone. Those elders are focused on evangelistic efforts. So our missions program, our athletic ministry, I mean, all of that. And then the D zone is like who all the staff members meet with, discipleship zone, because they're kind of overseeing our ministries. There's an administrative zone. That, that works with the budget and those types of issues. And then there's the worship zone that works directly with Jim Moonwalk and his, his staff on worship issues. So, so practically, we're taking the elders and dividing them among those areas for focused attention. Hmm. Any other questions, thoughts? Good questions. I'm going to close with a couple thoughts. Um, Men, whether or not we will ever serve as elders, we all ought to seek to be the men described in these passages. Um, Examine yourself. Confess sin and repent where needed, and it will be needed often. As you just go through the list, it's like my... Goodness, And then pray that God would give the grace to be a biblical elder, whether you serve on the session or not. Again, God gives grace to forgive. Um, We confess our sins. He's faithful to forgive our sins. He also gives grace to transform and to grow us up into more of the likeness and image of Christ. Finally, um, if, if you've listened today and all you can think about is how short you have fallen and how much of a failure uh, you must be, hear me now. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are made right with God by His grace. Not works. It's a gift. We have been redeemed by Christ and Christ alone. Your sins have been fully and finally paid for. So pray that God would give you grace to rest in the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus and that He would give grace to transform you into more of the likeness and image of Christ. Uh, We have communion, second hour, and what better way to be ministered the grace of God than to participate in the sacrament of communion. So.
Amen. Good day.